This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Thanks a lot. Well, this is the fourth um, and last talk in the um, the Engaged Buddhist series. So can I just see a show of hands who, let's see, who have not heard the other three? Okay. So um, if you're interested in any of the other three, they, they will be available. And in fact, two of, out of the three are available already on Dharma Seed, which is, um, you can get two from the IMSB website, or you can just go to imsb.dharmaseed.org, and they're there. So, um, so I'm going to wrap it up tonight with a talk on um, non-clinging to outcomes. So the, the Pali term is upadana, and um, that's what has been translated to clinging, and some people are very familiar with this, but I, for those of you who aren't, or for those of you who would like a little taste of one of the suttas, I wanted to read a little bit of the Upadana Sutta. It's very short. Um, Near Savati, there the Blessed One said to the monks, in one who keeps focusing on the allure of clingable phenomena, craving develops. From craving as a requisite condition, comes clinging. From clinging as a requisite condition comes becoming. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. From birth as a requisite condition then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair come into play. Such is the origin of this entire mass of suffering and stress. So this is um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation of the Pali. Just as if a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, or 40 cartloads of timber were burning, and into it a man would time and again throw dried grass, dried cow dung, and dried timber so that the great mass of fire, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. In the same way, in one who keeps focusing on the allure of clingable phenomena, craving develops. And then craving, and then clinging, and then clinging, and becoming, and bu- becoming, and birth, and etc. Such is the origin of the entire mass of suffering and stress. And then he goes on to talk about how such a thing ceases. Um, Now, in one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of clingable phenomena, craving ceases. Cessation of craving leads to the cessation of clinging, leads to the cessation of becoming, birth, aging, illness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair, all cease. Um, 
So this is a really central, central sutta in the Buddhist teachings. Um, the second ennobling truth is often translated uh, that clinging is the cause of suffering after the first noble truth, which is that suffering is in li- life contains suffering. Um, so I don't know Pali, but um, I don't know what upadana, what the um, connotations of upadana and Pali are, but the translation into the English clinging, um, Buddhist English one might call it, um, definitely ha- is, a, is a physical, it's a metaphor for a physical thing. George Lakoff, who's a uh, linguist at Berkeley, has written a, a wonderful, gigantic book on philosophy of the flesh, on how our language is all based on metaphor, the, the, how we sense our world. And so clinging is a real easy one. You know, clinging, we're not letting go. We're holding on, even as things wither and disappear. So, um, so if clinging causes suffering, um, what about clinging to outcomes? So outcomes, might, they might be views or ideas or concepts about a particular state of the world that we would like to see or perhaps that we would like not to see. Um, so clinging to views is particularly mentioned by the Buddha as le- leading to stress, dissatisfaction, suffering, dukkha. So um, this series, as I mentioned, is called The Engaged Buddhist. And I, I agree with Aya Santusika, the first speaker in this series, when she said she couldn't really imagine um, such a thing as a non-engaged Buddhist. Um, whether that engagement involved being a friend to somebody, sitting with a dying person, or doing something um, like marching against climate change. Um, But what inspired this series was a more narrow definition of engaged Buddhism that was um, kind of emerged from Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings a few decades ago, um, with, with a meaning of, of social engagement or, or working to address social ills. And um, I thought I might read to you some of the precepts of engaged Buddhism that Thich Nhat Hanh has conceived um, and written in his book, Interbeing because I think these are quite inspiring and tie in with, um, with our subject of the series. So number one is, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. Number two, do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. 
Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. Number three is do not force others, including children, by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrow-mindedness. Number four, do not avoid suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering, including personal contact, visits, images, and sounds. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. I'm not going to read all 14, don't worry. Each one of these is pretty meaty, so... Number five is, do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Number six is, do not maintain anger or hatred. Learn to penetrate and transform them when they are still seeds in your consciousness. As soon as they arise, turn your attention to your breath in order to see and understand the nature of your hatred. Do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit or transform your community into a political party. A religious community, however, should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. That's number 10. So I, 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 uh, I encountered these for the first time in preparing for this talk, and I find them um, really interesting, uh, very... Uh, very meaty, so they're easy to find if you want to revisit them. So um, in the series, we've heard uh, from three, three other speakers on efforts, their efforts to address social ills. Um, Santusika in, is the director for Buddhist Global Relief, which is a charitable organization striking at the roots of poverty and relieving chronic hunger and malnutrition. And she didn't talk too much about that um, when she spoke here, but her, um, her talk was extremely relevant to her efforts in that, in that area. And then Oren Sofer um, gave us the story of Daryl Davis, who, through his careful nonviolent communication with members of the KKK, helped create the conditions for a whole chapter of that organization collapsing. 
thereby freeing former members and their acquaintances and their former targets from wrongful racist views and actions. Very inspiring. And then last week, Phil Goodwin and Bill Castura spoke about their service in a men's prison. So um, these are these are all uh, wonderful examples, um, and we often don't talk here too much here about uh, these larger societal um, and economic and political issues. But the the Buddha didn't didn't um, shy away from from those topics, and I, I wanted to read a little bit from. Um, uh, Rahula's book, What the Buddha Taught, and I, I picked this book up um, when Aya Santusika was here uh, because it was available on the table uh, for uh, freely offered. So that's really lovely. And I had, I had heard about um, one of our, one of our, our friends here having been initially inspired by this book to uh, look at the teachings of the Buddha. So the Buddha did not take life out of the context of its social and economic background. He looked at it as a whole in all its social, economic, and political aspects. His teachings on ethical, spiritual, and philosophical problems are fairly well known, but little is known, particularly in the West, about his teachings on social, economic, and political matters. So for example, the um, see if I can pronounce this long Pali word, Chakavati Sihanada Sutta of the Diganakaya clearly states that poverty is the cause of immorality and crimes, such as theft, falsehood, violence, hatred, cruelty, etc. Kings in ancient times, like governments today, tried to suppress crime through punishment. The Kutadanta Kutadanta Sutta of the same Nikaya explains how futile this is. It says that this method can never be successful. Instead, the Buddha suggests that in order to eradicate crime, the economic condition of the people should be improved. Grain and other facilities for agriculture should be provided for farmers and cultivators, Capital should be provided for traders and those engaged in business. Adequate wages should be paid to those who are employed. When people are thus provided with, are thus provided for with opportunities for earning a sufficient income, they will be contented, will have no fear or anxiety, and consequently the country will be peaceful and free from crime. So that's really lovely. So if, if you're moved to act in any of those spheres, political, social, economic, or examine your livelihood with respect to its consequences for bringing increased suffering or reducing harm for society or the world, be careful of clinging to outcomes, that is, views of what should happen as a consequence of your actions. So in contemplating this topic, I was really um, lucky, and, um, and it's, it's nifty the way sometimes things fall in your lap, that I ran across uh, Joan Halifax's book 
uh, from last year called Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And she says, Over the years, I slowly became aware of five internal and interpersonal qualities that are keys to a compassionate and courageous life, and without which we cannot serve nor can we survive. Yet if these precious resources deteriorate, they can manifest as dangerous landscapes that can cause harm. And I call these bivalent qualities edge states. So the edge states, as she um, describes them, are altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement, which is the topic of this series. So those are all um, generally considered pro-social qualities. And she points out that it can, it is possible and does happen that those qualities or states can have a dark side. So, for example, altruism can become pathological altruism. And that would be someone who, who is attempting to serve others, but perhaps at the same um, harming oneself or even harming others in, in, a, in a deluded view on what an, altruism, an altruistic action should be, such as perhaps taking someone else's agency away without their um, full participation. And then there's empathy, and there's been a lot of work on empathy in the research sphere lately, um, that can, can uh, become empathetic distress. And sometimes when empathy arises and um, one has a sensitive emotional feeling about how someone else is suffering, it can cause one um, distress to the point that um, other good qualities fall away and more suffering ensues instead of less. And in fact, some, some folks have even suggested that empathy, there's too much empathy, <laughs> that compassion is actually a preferable, preferable quality. And then there's um, integrity. Uh, and the dark side of that would be moral suffering such as moral distress, moral injury, moral outrage, or moral apathy. Four different, have four different possibilities. Um, and those, those are, I haven't read that chapter yet, but that's an interesting one in, in here. And then respect. Um, the downside of that would be disrespect. That's just the flip side of it. It doesn't seem like a near enemy. It just seems like the opposite that can arise quite easily when one doesn't um, keep, keep um, equanimity about 
other beings in mind. And finally, engagement, the dark side of that, or the, um, the edge state is going into burnout. And um, Halifax gives several examples in the book of, of how people who are very strongly engaged in, in action, um, activity in the world to reduce suffering, just wear themselves out. And it's a little bit akin to, um, perhaps it's akin to pathological altruism. So I really like the way of, that way of framing things and, and thinking about them and um, those qualities which, um, which we do think of as pro-social have, um, have dangers that we, can, that we can find antidotes to or remedies for, I think, in the Dhamma. I think, um, I think the Brahma Viharas, as we heard from Santusika on, on uh, the first night, um, provide several remedies, as well as other things. So, so I, I guess I would ask you, how do you know that you're clinging? So you, you might see, see if you're suffering emotionally or see if you might be suffering from, from moral outrage or moral injury or, or moral distress. Take a look at your own internal reactivity and, and uh, contemplate it. See if there's suffering there. And then investigation can lead to, um, can be part of the solution. Um, And then, of course, the ultimate compassion and wisdom, um, cultivating these through the Eightfold Path. And so I I think of three three of the eight um, to bring up tonight. Um, Certainly right intention. Um, When Oren spoke on the second of the series, he talked about the importance of um, entering your communication with another person with the right intention, the intention to listen, um, the intention to respect the other, the intention to be curious, and maybe even the attention to, intention to spend, suspend judgment, to... Um, to not know. So other other parts of the um, that fold of the eightfold path, uh, goodwill and harmlessness, certainly related to to compassion and loving kindness and mudita and equanimity. So since I was talking to talking about non uh, non clinging to outcomes or views about the future, um, right view, the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. So, in terms of impermanence, you can think big, like we withdrew from the Paris Climate Accords 
all that work over periods of many years, gone. Maybe not completely gone, but for now, our country is not part of that. Unsatisfactoriness. Um, I was reading about conservation efforts and how the best intentions of um, people who would like to prevent species from going to ex- going extinct can can go awry. Um, island ecosystems are 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 in particular laboratories for for such things. And I was reading about this island off of New Zealand, um, actually off of Tasmania, um, where settlers had brought cats to the island. Um, cats had begun to kill the, some of the seabirds that nested there and almost eradicated them or um, prevented them from using that island. Um, and then uh, rabbits, mice, and rats came to the island. So some of the first conservation efforts were, were well, we, we ought to get rid of those cats because they are killing the seabirds. So they did get rid of the cats. And then the rabbits <laughs> um, multiplied to the point where they denuded the, the island of vegetation. They, they got rid of 40% of the vegetation on this island. And so um, then the conservationists had to realize that, um, that maybe getting rid of the cats was not such a great idea. So then they went in and got rid of the rabbits and the mice and the, and the rats. <laughs> so a lot of killing... Um, for the sake of certain species. And um, so one could say that has the quality of dukkha about it, Um, unsatisfactoriness in one way. Well, yes, it's wonderful to save some species that have lower populations, but then you're also killing life in order to create that condition. So... Very complicated, as I'm sure you all know. You all know, but as soon as you dip your toe into natural ecosystems, you can see the um, the causes and conditions of ten thousand things right away. <laughs> and then the third of the three characteristics, not self. I think one way of thinking about that is: Are you causing global warming all by yourself? Can you? yourself stop global warming? I mean, one way I, I think of us is like grains of sand being um, washing up on beaches and we're all subject to these great forces and some of, them, some of us land on quieter beaches than others. Um, we're, we're all in a complex web of causes and conditions. And global warming is, um, is something that has happened over a period of over a century and um, is, is caused by, uh, by our species. Um, so it's, it's a new, uh, new era for the Earth, the Anthropocene. I mean, the example of the rabbits denuding the island of vegetation mean that 
means that we are not the only species who are capable of destroying our environment. It's just that our species has been more successful in proliferating in recent, um, recent times. So um, the, th the third uh, fold of the Eightfold Path I wanted to mention tonight is right mindfulness. Um, I, really, I really liked um, what Oren said. One of his other major tips was in communicating is to pause. Take a moment before you rush into speech. And that can give your mindfulness a chance to kick in and for you to remember what your good intentions are, for you to remember the good qualities um, of yourself and the person that you're speaking to. Um, and so that, that pause, uh, a very short period of um, mindfulness, is, is a really good practice. And then, of course, most of us are practicing meditating, which can be longer than that short pause. We can have our daily practices of five minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, what have you. I think of these as sort of different scales of practice, the pause, the daily sit, and then there's the retreat. You can go on a day-long retreat or multiple days and really spend time cultivating qualities that will be helpful in your interactions with, with others. So we might tend to think of people like Joan Halifax and Bernie Glassman or the Dalai Lama when we think of socially engaged Buddhism. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he's, he founded peace-oriented educational and religious institutions during the Vietnam War. He led anti-war protests. He re rebuilt villages. He resettled refugees. He lobbied internationally for peace talks. He published articles and books on the crisis facing his country and the Buddhist tradition. Um, but the efforts of these individuals would be fruitless if it was not for the participation of thousands or, or even millions of other people and their skillful actions in specific moments. So I hope that weaving together of, of the topics for the month has been... Um, has been helpful or beneficial. And since we still have about 15 minutes in our time together, I would like to open it up for questions and discussion. And I think I'll start it off by posing a question for you. And that is that I was exercising my um, free speech rights um, last weekend, not last weekend, the weekend before, with a, uh, a bunch of other folks on a street corner. And um, it brought great joy to, to me. I, was, I felt very uplifted. Um, people were, our discussions were respectful, and um, it was just a really lovely hour. And then I was walking back home, and I overheard someone who lived in the neighborhood 
talking to uh, another person who had been in the, in the demonstration and said, well, why don't I come to your house and honk, honk my horn really loud? So what had happened was, by standing on the street corner, there, there was traffic going by and people were honking their horns in response to the signs that some of us had. And so it was rather loud for about an hour because there were a lot of cars honking. <laughs> and so then I was thinking about the fact that this person who lived nearby um, had to suffer you know, this, this cacophony at his own, own home, perhaps some suffering there, and he was clearly not happy about it. So, so what do you think about the, that, uh, that juxtaposition of people who feel that by expressing themselves publicly um, can help to reduce suffering at the same time causing suffering to another individual who didn't have a choice because that's where he lives. And it's not a Zen koan. (laughs) Or maybe it is. Maureen, what do you think? Um, I think this is a really good example of people are not paying attention to where they are. It's Mm -hmm. like where they've chosen to live. It's like I live in downtown Mountain View. And there are things that happen in my neighborhood because we're downtown Mountain View. It's, there's all sorts of stuff going on, it's loud, it's crazy, it's, and a lot of us, that's why we live there. And there's other people that suffer because they were hoping for a more suburban experience in living there. And in that sort of case, when you live in a place that's close to large intersections and stuff like that, that's what happens. So, so it's like, oh, right, I wasn't thinking. It's like if you buy a house near an airport. <laughs> you bought a house near an airport. It's like, oh, no, I bought a house near an airport. You know, and, and that's what that reminds me of. It's like, and so often we don't think about what we have gotten ourselves into. Sometimes somebody who goes in the library will park across my driveway. And unless I've left one of the cars out front, it's like I have to go and have the librarians announce there's a car blocking, you know, like that. It's, it's, it's just, you know, you don't always account for everything that's, that's going to happen in your environment. Yeah, thank you for uh, offering that. Bill has something to say.
Thank you, Bill. Thanks for offering that. Ooh, this, this one got a lot of people going. In the back there? Yeah, I, I have to point out that um, it was not the people on the street corner who were making the sound. It was the people that, that were driving by that were responding to the sound. I just wanted to, to add that in the scenario. Um, because I, I think of um, Thich Nhat Hanh's um, way of um, expressing um, political speech is that he would walk with his followers um, very peacefully and very quietly. Um, and then on reflecting, I could say, well, we didn't make the noise, but we probably did encourage people. We, we, um, we waved at people. And so I think that that might have encouraged them to make more noise. Um, Steve, I think, was next, and then, and then Paul. I was curious for the wine at the Auckland Wine Festival because all the downtown mountains about that. It's not just noise; it's talking. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think I think that is. I think Bill made a really good point about noticing how, when someone else's views in is a, are in accordance with one's own, that one is much more tolerant. And in the case of the Art and Wine Festival in downtown Mountain View, that's not... Um, there are some t tables that have political content, but for the most part, it's an apolitical festival, and that might affect how, how it lands on someone's mind. Paul? Yeah, so two things. One is, uh, you know, I've spent some time... Uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and I went to one of their protests, which was uh, during the period where the Burmese monks were being kind of in conflict with the Burmese government, and uh, people were uh, protesting outside the Chinese, um, not embassy, but whatever, the next thing down from the embassy. Oh. It, yeah, it, um, the consulate. San Francisco, because Bur Burma did not have an embassy in the U.S. at the time. We didn't have established relationships, and but the Chinese were perceived to be supporting Bur the Burmese military government at the time. So when we went there, you know, there would be all these Burmese people, and they'd be yelling and whatnot. And 
we would just sit and meditate. And so I, I kind of like that sort of trying idea of, yeah, it's okay to protest, but sometimes you, you can speak louder by doing what people don't expect you to do, which in that case was sitting on the side of the road and, and meditating sort of as an example of what the monks that we were all protesting for do in their daily life. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, I mean, I've been participating in these various Buddhist groups around here just, just about the same length of time that you have. And a, a number of times I've been in little group conversations um, and, you know, like three quarters of the people are, you know, from a liberal perspective. But I've, I've heard people sometimes feel that they're a little marginalized in that context. And I can't even imagine what it's like now because things have gotten so much more polarized in the last five, three years as compared to, say, the last 15 or 20 years. Where, you know, I mean, obviously this is a little more liberal area, but it's just the, the amount of push and noise about it is, is so much stronger. So I, I just want to say that if there are people here tonight or in other contexts that do have a different point of view, I, I do have some compassion for them. Um, Thank you. I, I do appreciate uh, typically the, the spiritual teachers, Charlotte and, and Gil, have made a point to say that all, all views are welcome here. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And I think that's really consistent with um, Thich Nhat Hanh's precept to not use a sangha as a um, partisan uh, entity. And, um, and at IMSB, we definitely strive for that. So really appreciate that. And um, as far as meditating while practicing practicing free speech um, the very first march that I ever went on which happened to be about climate change there was a um, there was someone meditating on the sidewalk um, I don't know what what um, sect he was from but as I walked past him and I, at that point I hadn't meditated before I was just um, extremely impressed at the peace that he was um, kind of emanating, and that was inspiring to me. Part of part of the reason that I set out on the path. So um, you don't have to say anything to be very inspiring. So anything else, Sharon? Yeah, so I practical way to engage with hearing, speaking as you say. Yeah, that would be a, a very very um could be quite a skillful means to immediately apologize and respect 
him for his um, his uh, position and views. All right. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time together. I thank you for participating, and I hope you enjoyed the Engaged Buddhist series. And see you hopefully the second week of March. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.